All right, we are in the second week of our Romans Bible study. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful. We'd ask that you would get us through some of these hard to understand and difficult things um, and start building up the Apostle Paul's argument that he's giving uh, to the Romans, both Jew and Gentile. We'd ask that you would um, bless our time in your son's name. Amen. And one thing that as you go through Romans, it's probably Romans that's most of all this way, but uh, St. Peter, somewhere, um, writes of, uh, writes of St. Paul at the end of Second Peter, and it says, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. I wanted to read that just at the outset here of chapter 3, because 3 and 4, we went through chapters 1 and 2 last week, uh, 3 and 4 are... Um, um, Three and four are a convoluted set of questions and answers. Hey, Josh. Hello. <laughs> um, um, which, of course, as Christians have decided to make a mess of their biblical interpretation for about 2,000 years, until you came to this Bible study, and all things, all things true and right were made evident. Um, we, we, evident, yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll pause to forgive her. Um, but it's going to be pretty evident to all of us the, how difficult extracting the question mindset that the Romans had that Paul is answering, or the artificial questions he creates. Um, because you're not quite sure what line of thought he's taking through this. Now, initially in chapter 3, uh, you'll see I've centered it mostly because, although in the text it, it'll be justified, because I wanted to draw attention to the questions as they occur. You know, it goes through question, then an answer, question, then an answer, question, then an answer. And we're trying to, you might say, keep our saddle on St. Paul, keep the bit and bridle where it needs to be, um, so we know where we end up. We, we, we're trying to go through Romans in such a way that we figure out what he said. Now, whether you agree with what he said is another matter, or whether you like it, or whether you think uh, it means something else, uh, that's up to you. But we'd like to know what he says, and what he's addressing when he says it. Now, the end of last week, um, at the very end of chapter 2, he makes a... Um, a difficult, not for us difficult, but difficult in the Mediterranean at this time, uh, claim. In chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Which is like throwing a hand grenade in the middle of the uh, theological debate that's going on in Rome. Jews and Gentiles, which is the major um, 
um, which is the major. There are notes right over there by the do. Um, and you can sit back by Graham or on the floor or. Um, it's pretty evident that Paul is addressing a mindset that has that distinction, Jew and Gentile, in his audience, probably Jew and Gentile Christians, Jew and Gentile curious people. Um, and to say such a thing is to yank the rug out from under all the Jews. Paul is a Jew. He was a very devout Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, he knows that he has been followed around the Mediterranean, you read through the book of Acts, being chased by Jews who their major beef with Paul was that he was undercutting the traditions and he was undercutting this uh, the lofty position the Jews had put their own race and religion in. And so the Jews weren't minding so much that Christians were coming on board. Gentile Christians were coming on board, but even within Christianity, they were pushing them to become Jews as well. So that it really was a growth of Judaism in the sect called Christianity. Okay, so even the Judaizers were those who were inside the Christian church who were trying to make sure that all these Gentiles who came in, came in on Jewish terms. They were really converts to Judaism as they converted to God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but still, nonetheless, and the Jews that weren't believers were even more virulently got Paul beat up, stoned, turned into the powers that be, uh, and finally arrested in Jerusalem. After all this, that's coming up next. So he knows that his audience is hardwired in a very um, problematic way regarding their Judaism. So, the basic thing, if true Jewishness is of the heart, not of the flesh, you're not born a true Jew, that means all the true Jews, what are they standing around? Are they chopped liver? I mean, they, they don't have... He, what, is, what does he leave them? First question, first verse, chapter 3. Then what advantage is the Jew? It's a very natural question to be asking. But if we've been the elect people of God, thank you very much, for about 1,390 years. Um, 1,490 years. What, what's your, uh, well, longer than that, really, you take it from, probably more like closer to 2,000 from, um, um, what's that guy's name? Abraham's, uh, the promise to Abraham. Um, or what is the value of circumcision? You just said that circumcision was of the heart, not literal, not physical. Jewishness is of the heart, not f literal, not physical. It's spiritual. Well, he says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, that was nice. They had the Bible. And because of them, the prophets came down through, the lawgivers, the prophets, the historians, all that, were carrying on the message of, of God faithfully, at least in terms of the oracles. But he doesn't go any further than that. He says, well, to them, there were, they, they, we are grateful that they preceded us in history, that they guarded the flame, basically, over the millennia about Yahweh. What if some were unfaithful? says the question. Now the questions are generally questions that are not disposed towards Paul's position. 
Okay, he sets up these questions to be antagonists' questions. Um, he even makes that point in a couple of verses that he's not talking essentially for himself. But what 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 was someone unfaithful? Some the Jews you can read Kings, Chronicles, Deuteronomy, Numbers. You're going to get a pretty grim view of Jewish behavior, even though God was speaking to them. They always seem to be rebelling. They always seem to have bad kings. They always seem to be trying God's patience. They always seem to need to be conquered by somebody because they deserved it. What if some were unfaithful? Now, there is a thought that people would say, because the Jews were unfaithful, the promises of God, you know, people have asked this a lot, or the Jews to God's chosen people. Well, I'll leave you to answer that for yourself, but they were concerned about it. Okay, so we were unfaithful. So some people got a little out of line. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, I think this has to do with God's promises to him. He is arguing that true Jewishness is not the physical line of Jews, but that of people, people of the heart, people of faith. And they're coming up with questions about well, what's the advantage here? Well, they, they kept the Bible the Bible. Uh, second, um, uh, they're trying to set him up to answer a question about God's faithfulness. God holds his promises by no means. Verse 4, Let God be true, though every man be false, as it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy words, and prevail when thou art judged. Now that's out of Psalm 51, a penitential psalm by David, where he is uh, confessing his sin. I have it a little bit on the side here where it quotes, but it starts out this way, Against thee only have I sinned, and done evil before thee, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So you can tell he's quoting from that passage. He's quoting the second part. So even when David is sinned, even when the average Jew has not been faithful, God is faithful to what he has said, right? Be justified in thy sayings, and I might overcome any accusation if I were judged, right? Thou would prevail when thou art judged. God will be held to be innocent. Even when man fails, he will hold to his word. Now, you don't know any of these people who are, that Paul is putting words into their mouth, essentially. They're, they're a set of questions that he is trying to drive the Jew and the Gentile alike to certain conclusions regarding the gospel. This is not, this is the first century. This is not after 2,000 years of Christian theology, not after 2,000 years of people being um, uh, very sophisticated. This is a new sect trying to drop anchor in the Roman Empire, trying to preach something, salvation for Jew and Gentile alike, by faith, from their sins, to eternal life, by the death of a Jew guy. Some Jew dies, and they're trying to sell that as atonement. It's a tough gig. Okay? It's not really an easy task. So Paul is trying to lay out with some precision what it's what we're, how we get there. Why is he making these statements? But if our wickedness, another question, verse 5, serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He's saying, I'm speaking as someone outside of my position. 
I'm throwing things out that people might say that somehow that if what we did, our unfaithfulness, showed that God was faithful, doesn't he kind of owe us for improving his resume? Now, that is a natural, a natural thought of man. Um, that woman, remember that painting in Italy, that fresco that that woman destroyed by attempting to clean it and then correct it and then finally turned into a vague smudge of Jesus' face? But then it became so highly notable, she's now suing for royalties. She destroyed the painting, but they got all these tourist dollars or people coming to see this atrocity. And her, now she wants her cut of the action. And that's what these people are saying. We want our cut of the action. We, your reputation, God, looked like it got improved by our misbehavior. Don't you think it's unjust to pour out wrath to us? By no means, verse 6. For then how could God judge the world? If judgment, this is what people think, the error is post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? London. After which, therefore, because of which. So basic error of judgment, that if something came after, it was caused by the thing that was before. So their wickedness, God's justice, the wickedness came before, therefore it caused the righteousness, or the, the justice of God. Okay? It, it is an error to say post hoc ergo proper hoc. It is uh, not legitimate that because something is after, it is caused by the thing before. Now, but well, how do we think? Of, we, 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 well, they, he wouldn't be just, or he wouldn't be um, known to be righteous and faithful if we hadn't been. But if through my falsehood, verse 7, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. He is actually running to people that are, you know, uh, if you've ever been in a philosophical argument or a theological argument, you will know that those who uh, oppose you will raise straw men where you will look your possible worst. You know, uh, they will define your idea as being um, really, I mean, semi-retarded, functionally illiterate, you know, that, that level of of obvious uh, failure. And he says, some people are slanderously charging us with saying that, that, the, um, uh, that God intended the evil of the Jews or the history of the Jews to bring about this, this uh, Christ figure who, who, so therefore the basic principle is why not do evil that good may come. He's saying, well, how could God judge the world? If if it was always judgment always follows evil, right? There could be no judgment at all. There could be, and if no judgment at all, no morality at all, because without there is no law without police action. That's the the, the, the civics approach to it. There is no law without police action. And if God says, you know, killing your neighbor, that's wrong. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, nothing really. Well, then you're big and it's your opinion, but it's really you're big and that's your opinion. That's it. You're not doing anything about it. It's really not wrong for me to kill my neighbor because nobody is going to judge me. 
How could God judge the world if his righteous statement, a righteous position of judgment, he looks like a righteous agent if he judges evil men, how could he be just if he was getting benefited, he's getting a profit out of the judgment? In other words, his reputation goes up. Well, how do I think about it? If, if God is getting a benefit, I mean, um, if I look good, um, oh, say, say somebody comes in here and starts to uh, harass the young ladies and I, I uh, save them somehow. <laughs> save them, remarkably, arm wrestling or something. Uh, and although I hadn't planned it and didn't set it up, I saved them from these insults of these traveling hooligans. And uh, my reputation goes up because I saved them, and I trust you would think better of me at the end because the hooligans had been chased off. Do the hooligans get to come back and ask for five bucks because I profited from their misbehavior? Well, you know, it's something. So, yeah, my, my reputation went up because of your misbehavior, but is that, a, is that a debt I owe you? Is that a debt I owe you? And so it's really, so how do I think about this? If it's not post hoc ergo proper hoc, how do I think about it? Sin, evil, one, it goes back, if I look at verse 5, if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, their disconnected wills, okay? And their disconnected wills serving different um, powers and different directions. So it's not like causation. Causation has to put into effect that which necessitates the other thing. When I choose the direction of evil, I'm choosing to move away from God. When God steps into the situation and judges me, and corrects me back into his way, he's having me turn the other direction. Causality is actually, the, the, the causes were pushing me further from God, and now another cause steps in and says, okay, no, go opposite. Repentance means to turn around. So just in terms of the mental picture, instead of just, I, this was done, and then God, of course, did that, so therefore he should credit me for bringing about that good quality in him, he says, no, you were going in opposite direction. I had to turn you around completely. It's a matter of opposing force. Okay? It's a matter of opposing force. Evil did not create the good. Now, we, we oftentimes justify our own sins. People talk about their lies or talk about whatever they choose to do that is, um, they know, not entirely correct. And, and they like to put some goods out the other end as their justification. And when you realize that the will to do evil, the will to lie, the will to murder, the will to steal, is a service in one way. We talked about faith last week as the seeking of God and the pursuit of him and his will away from your own will. And sin was the fleeing from God and his will and pursuing your own will. What, what you think you ought to get, what you think you ought to have. So when you think of it as opposing directions, you will tend not to think, see, of it, see it as um, a causality relationship. But he, what he's gotten to, 
What advantage has the Jew? Okay, they were the history of God's revelation. That was the sum total of it. And no, you don't get any points for that. Because you really were rotten most of those years, and God really was patient, and God really was just, and God really was faithful to his word. And um, no, you can't have any chocolate cake. That's largely it. So the next question, verse 9, what then? Okay, back off, lighten up, Francis. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. <laughs> it's how to make friends and influence people. No, no, you Jews aren't special. Now, he's a Jew, he's talking to Jews, his brethren, but he's learned about the faith in God and grace in Christ so well, he knows that he's not serving an addendum to Judaism. He is not saying, let's bring, let's bring new life. This is not a, a restoration of true Judaism. This is not bringing Gentiles in as new part of the elect people. No, it's not that. I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have all gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14. 13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. That's Psalm 5. The venom of asps is under their lips, Psalm 140. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, Psalm 10. Their feet are shift, swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know, Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Psalm 36. Now, you don't have those references there. you sort of got to look them up. Paul knows his Old Testament. And he's just throwing them a string of Old Testament passages that speak of sin in the people it's addressing, or talking about. And his reason for doing that is, because remember he's talking to the Jews, part of the audience. Now the book is divided between talking to Jews and to talking to Gentiles and talking to both. Right now he's talking to the Jews. Are we Jews any better off? Now, we know, verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, that's a confusing passage, but it makes perfectly good sense. He just gave you a rundown of passages out of the law. The Jews spoke of all of the scriptures as the law. So, all these quotes out of Psalms are quotations of the law. Whatever the law says, it's speaking to those who are under the law. So you might want to realize that all these Davidic remarks are speaking to you Jews. Speaking to those who are under the law. Jewish book written for Jews by Jews. So that every mouth may be stopped. It's to shut them up. Everyone, he's introduced this, both Jew and Greek are under the power of sin. And in case you Jews think that somehow you're the divinely, really neat people, let me quote a few Old Testament passages, and these were written for and about you, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Simple. I'm getting to the point, not where the Jewish people are elect and we're kind of get them to act more gracious to the Gentile, Paul's theory is, you know, 
Everybody's a rat fink. Everybody tubed this. The Jews had the law. That was an advantage, but they weren't any better for it. The Gentiles back in, in Romans 1 and 2, they were talking about, you know, they have the they do by nature what the law requires. Their convicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. On that day when God judges the secrets of men, they know what's wrong. Just like the Jew knows what's wrong, and they all violate it. They all violate it. For no human being, verse 20, will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now that's what you've got to hold out, is that Paul is justifying the law as a thing, but not justifying it as the thing people think it's for. I still run into Christians who think, well, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments, don't you? No, you don't. Because the Ten Commandments weren't ever there to be kept. They were there to give you knowledge. They were there to tell you what was right, not to make you right. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The real task that, that was, we thought was represented by the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses or anything else in the law, all that righteousness that is manifested is not accessible to us through the law. It is through what? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now the basic tension here between the state of man and the state of grace, it's a very simple polar opposite that we talked about last week. It's a matter of where's my seeking? Where is my humbling? Where is my obedience? Where is my pursuit? You notice back in the passages he quoted, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's out of Psalm 14. I have it over on the side here. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's not just a great verse to whip out or put on your fridge when the atheist friend is coming over. Um, you're not, it's not just, a, I like calling somebody a fool, like they, they don't say there's a God. Well, the idea here goes right into, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there, there is none that does good. It's not the, the atheist, you've got to give them his props, at least he's trying to make some kind of philosophical sense out of his misbehavior, he's not going to do a good job, but he's, he's trying to make some sense out of it. And... Uh, but the problem is, there is no God, I don't pursue him, I pursue next best thing. They look, God looks down, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if that they, any are acting wisely, that seek after God. Faith is the seeking after God. You know, I, I, I overquote Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For anyone who would draw near to God must first believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So I want you to be thinking in terms of faith, right there in Hebrews, it says, at the beginning of chapter 11, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in verse 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must believe he's there, and you must believe he is to be sought. And the problem with man and all of his sin is they do not seek after God. The path to righteousness is not a better grip on the Ten Commandments. More cold showers, uh, uh, monastic living. Um, the path to righteousness, no human being, verse 20, will be justified in his sight by works of the law. The righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law. Okay? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what you can say, this was to show when he gets down in verse, um, where is it? Uh, verse uh, 20, middle of 25, where it says, this was to show. This previous set of things, the law didn't bring righteousness. It was going to be manifested apart from the law, but the law was going to point to it. Okay? The law does not point to itself as the achievement of righteousness. It just reveals your failure to be righteous. But it does point, it creates shadows, it creates images, it creates prophecies that point to what would be the answer to the question, not how to obey the law, but how to be righteous. The, and they bear witness to it, which is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now that it's a, uh, you got to think, it is faith for all who believe. Through faith for all, if they have the faith. It's got to be, that's the path. It's no longer law keeping. And there's no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs the help. But everyone has this access because everyone has access to faith. When it used to be, you had to be born a Jew or convert and get circumcised and then you know, go through all these special whatevers to get included in the Jewish people so you could be elect. And St. Paul's walking along and saying, no, it doesn't work like that. Now it's for everybody and it's simple. Everybody can have access to the faith because we're not trying to be elect, we're trying to be righteous. Okay? The idea is not to prove to ourselves we're elect. The idea is to find this righteousness we seek. And that's why a person seeks God. He's tired of him putting his own path in front of his, you know, his daily activities and saying, yeah, I guess I'll follow that out and, and figure out what, um, see if life works out. Everyone needs the help. It has to be grace because there is no law whereby you could do it. You've got to have the help. And the help has to come from someone else. And it has to be received. If you go through that section, the righteousness of God manifested through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone needs it. Verse 23. They are justified by His grace as a gift. Means it has to be grace. Grace is a gift. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It has to be a redemption of someone else, not the redemption of you. It wasn't a grace to you so that you could finally save yourself. 
It's not God putting something out there or giving you a little shove or a little encouragement. It's like, come on, do better. I'll help you out. No, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross to forgive your sins, whom God put forward as expiation by his blood. So I really got to, I got to just, this whole thing of Christianity is a true turnaround from self-devotion and even if it's self-righteousness, it's unacceptable. It's inadequate. It's not going to do it. It's got to turn around and say, somebody else, by somebody else's rules, because I can't do it, and I'm just as bad as everyone else, and I can only find myself looking to God, his Christ, and his righteousness, and say, do I believe, and do I seek him? I mean, that's the question. You're asking yourself, just is my mental frame at that place, or do I still believe that I've got what it takes to run my own life? You've heard me say in church, so you go to our church about a time, you're too dumb to run your own life. And it's true of all of us. You're not too dumb to run some of your life. You can balance your checkbook. You can drive a car all the way over to the big house on Wednesday night without killing your sister. Uh, you can do all sorts of things. Maybe you can pass a class or something. But you can't run the rest of your life. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. He restates the whole shebang right there. He says this is to show why, why God was patient, why God overlooked certain things and didn't land on everybody with all of his wrath. He was bringing about his law and his prophets were pointing to this righteousness through faith. So at the present time, he would be seen as righteous and he would be seen as someone who forgives someone who seeks life in Christ. That's basically it. It's the seeking of life in Christ. Then what becomes of our boasting? Says the questioner. What becomes of our you know, being pleased as punch that we're from Scotland? or Jews, whatever it is you're from, if it's worthwhile. He says it is excluded. He's not really, he's not here to make a home for people of, of, of diverse opinions about their ethnic backgrounds. You don't, in Christianity, get to have Messianic Jews because they're not special. They aren't. Everyone was a sinner. The Jews had an advantage. Good, you know, We're grateful. Thank you. But like not, you're not any better standing with God. We did not join you in worship of Jesus Christ. We all, as sinners, found you to atone for our sins. The boasting is excluded. On what principle, says the questioner, on the principle of works? You're trying to say we, didn't, we don't deserve to be elect and to talk highly of ourselves? No. But on the principle of faith, he says in verse 27. No, but on the principle of faith. It wasn't that you weren't good enough. You weren't, but it's not that you weren't good enough. Because our state with God, that God picked a nation and worked out his purposes with them. I think, in many ways, he picked a real difficult people. Not that the Scots would be any better. You know, we just assume they didn't play well with others either. Um, but uh, the Jews, I mean, they're named Israel. 
he who strives with God, after he had fought with the angel of the Lord at the Jabbok, no, it wasn't striving side by side with God, it was fighting God. They were always rebellious. Well, the principle they're excluded on is the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what the Christian position is. You need a verse to put on your fridge. We hold that a man, the word justified means made righteous. That's what it means. For we hold that a man is made righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Now being made righteous either happens, the reason people translate it justified is because they see it as a reckoning or an imputation. Uh, there are two kinds of righteousness. One is active righteousness and one is um, uh, imputed righteousness. And because I have not been righteous, God um, imputes or reckons me righteous in spite of my sins because of points A and B. His grace is poured out not to all wicked, but to some who have faith because he chooses to, because he values what they've done, um, but not by works of the law. So, uh, but, so justified just means, means made righteous. Um, now, the, the faith is what works. The law does not. And since the law does not, it suddenly pulled out any... You know, other than having guarded the, the, you might say, the wayposts to Jesus, or the road signs to Jesus down through history, their law is not part of the Christian faith. It doesn't make righteous. Faith makes righteous. And God, interestingly enough, stands in the same proximity regarding faith, same proximity to all men, Jew and Gentile, he doesn't stand any closer to the Jew. Or is God, verse 29, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith, and the uncircumcised through their faith. Both will be through faith. Now some people make much of the ground of their faith and through their faith. I looked it up and it didn't seem like it was any kind of major hoorah. But if you wanted to make a hoorah out of it, you say, well, since they had the oracles of God, they knew who God was and they were expecting the Messiah. And so their faith was that those that had faith, their faith was rewarded. It was grounded in that. And the Gentiles came out of paganism and were worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and they came to believe. So it was a, a door in versus... Um, uh, someone who is there from the building of the thing up. You know, somebody walks into the house, somebody was there from the building of the house. I'm not going to... In both cases, it's faith. And Paul argues that aggressively. Um, he is the God of the Gentiles. One problem for all, one Savior for all, one path to righteousness for all. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now Paul then says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, if you're the kind of Christian who 
kind of likes to blend faith and law, you know, grace and law into your life, and, and you like to have kind of the, the ability to go back to the law of Moses and point to people to this, you're eating this kind of, or, and you people generally select which portions of the law they like to lean on. Because it, it, sometimes it's very clear, you know, that you shouldn't, you know, girls shouldn't wear clothes that are uh, for guys, like a guy's jacket or pants. I mean, it's clear. It's clear. And so and that's why in certain very conservative churches, and even not very conservative churches, people fall back on a combination. They, when they talk about salvation, they'll talk about faith and grace. And when they talk about the Christian life, they talk about law. That's covered in the book of Galatians, and Paul takes a very dim view of it. <laughs> he calls them idiots, and he says, don't even think of making sanctification by a different process than your justification. In other words, you are justified by faith, you should be living by faith. Don't do it by works of the law, that's the flesh. Now, Paul has a definite view. In Ephesians, he says that the law is abolished with its uh, commandments and ordinances. As a matter of fact, it's the same, uh, the same subject matter because he's talking to the Jews and Gentiles. Um, this is in um, Ephesians 2, uh, around verse 14. I'll start with verse 13. It's a good passage for you to know. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. Gentiles brought him. For he, who, for he is our peace, who has made us, us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. The joining of Jew and Gentile is in the atonement of Christ by faith to pursue the righteousness of God through faith, and it was to eliminate the law. So, go back to Romans here, since we're not on that. And you have this verse, you know, jumping out at you. Um, do we overthrow this law, both for the law by this faith? It sounds like, Paul, you're talking uh, down on the law. You're trying to say you're supposed to give it up. And he says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, since he doesn't, you don't see his facial expression. You don't know whether he is being ironic. You don't know if he's being sarcastic. You don't know if he's... Um, you just know what he's argued already. That righteousness is not through the law. Now, there are two possibilities given Paul's view. One is that the law is upheld for what the law was supposed to be doing. I'll give you another Paul quote out of Timothy. Where is Timothy? It's in the New Testament, right? Um, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 8. For we know that the law is good, if anyone uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and dis... Oh. But for the lawless. Oh, loveless. You guys loveless. I thought you guys were lawlesses. <laughs> but for the lawless and disobedient. Oh, there you are. 
but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers and moral persons, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul's saying, yeah, uh, we use the law, we use it for unbelief and wicked people, because... What he said here already in Romans, law is there to increase the trespass, to increase the guilt. It didn't fix the guilt, nor did it make you good. That's the problem. Because the only thing you've got is a will. There's no will in the law, and there's no power in the law. There's only judgment in the law. And so the only will in the law is yours, is whether you decide to serve that law. And Paul's view, uh, on one hand, could be, how are we upholding it? Well, yeah, we uphold the law for what it really is. Um, the other aspect that it could be, and I'll leave this as, a, as an option for you, you can look into it. Um, Paul allowed and believed that Jewish Christians could keep, if they didn't think that this was... Um, I, I, I celebrate Christmas, okay? Christ Mass. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I don't go to Mass. And, um, but here is Christ Mass. And I got a, probably all this Wotan tree worship hung up in my living room. And I've got uh, all sorts of pagan symbols floating around. And things that were part of the traditions, um, Paul allowed himself to be carried along by. He made a vow and cut his hair at one point. He paid for the vow of fees for some guys in Jerusalem before he got arrested because the Jew, James told him that a lot of the Christian Jews thought he was telling people not to keep the traditions of the fathers, you know, in their Jewish families. And so he was acting in such a way, whether he was right or wrong, but he was acting in such a way that suggests that, no, we, yeah, we're fine with upholding those aspects. But I really think he's so theologically driven right at this point, and he's not trying to make any friends and influence people. Well, he's trying to influence them, but not by backpedaling on anything. I would say it's probably the first. He says, no, we, we uphold the law. We, we know what it's for. It was never written. You know, when he says, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It doesn't matter what you say in the Old Testament. They can never do it. What then shall we say about Abraham? Chapter 4. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. People can have all this hagiography about Abraham. He did a lot of something. He could boast if, boy, he was somebody... But Paul brings it up short and says, yeah, but God doesn't work that way. Let's see what the scripture says, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I have bolded the word reckon, 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 reckon. It's there in the passage. Some translations will say credited. Um, imputed, I think is another uh, usage. But the great scripture out of uh, Genesis uh, uh, 15, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. God looked at his belief 
And instead of good deeds, ceremonial observances, the pursuit of God, believing God. We were talking about it, Graham and I were talking about it with some other people the other day, I think Sunday, college student dinner, uh, and we were talking about something, and the idea of belief came up. We used the phrase, believe in God, not believing in God. The idea that Abraham believed God. He didn't believe in God. Now, you have to believe in God first. It says that in Hebrews. You must believe that God exists, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Those are the two elements. But we have to believe that he rewards the seeker. We have to believe that he keeps his promises. We have to pursue what he says because we want to live life believing what he says more than believing what my social professor says. And you, it's amazing how many people think that their social professor is the guide to life or their, their anthro professor or their history professor or whomever, someone they respect, even their pastor, rather than their God. Now he's bringing up this, says, you don't have this to boast. Now, verse 4, to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. God doesn't reckon to pay you what you deserve. I reckon I'll send you to hell. Well, no, I, I really owe you that. Thank you. You've worked hard. And I don't mean to cheat you. You deserve every, every moment. Enjoy. One who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. God reckons righteousness of Abraham. To one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. God looks at someone who believes what he says as a very valuable soul. I think uh, Peter echoes this in Acts somewhere. I think it's uh, Acts 10. Yeah, Paul's talking to a Roman centurion. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right, is acceptable to him. Cornelius had been a Roman pagan, but he prayed to God and offered alms, and the angel of the Lord says, those things have arisen as a memorial before God. He still needed the gospel. He hadn't earned salvation. There was not a work in exchange. You did enough good, and God's going to make you one of his. He says, no, you still need to hear the message that all men need to follow in order to be saved that there is the faith and the promise of Jesus Christ. Because he's died on the cross to atone for your sins, you now have access to the righteousness of the Father through Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness, up, to whom God reckons righteousness apart from the works. Quote, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. So reckoning works two ways. Reckoning works two ways. Forgiveness is not reckoning. 
and righteousness is reckoning. Okay? God says, I will not consider your sins against you. You know this perfectly well from your own activity of forgiveness. Did anything truly metaphor? Somebody does something. Say I, I don't know, who should I push out of their chair? Say I, 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 I use a joke at someone's expense here, and afterwards I say, oh, golly, I'm sorry. You know? And you say, I forgive you. Now, did some lightning come out of your eyes and some magic forgiveness ray take some ledger in some hyperspace and erase the sin as you forgave? Well, I wouldn't think so. You reckoned it as not against me. If I sinned against you, you did not hold it against me. You were free to do that. God doesn't reckon against a man his sin. And he, and he says this out of quoting out of Psalm 32. I have it here, or a portion of it here on the side. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute, here it uses impute, sin, and whose, and whose my mouth there is no guile. Because I kept silence, my bones waxed old from my crying all the day. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. I became thoroughly miserable while a thorn was fastened in me. I acknowledged my sin and hid not mine iniquity. I said, I will confess mine iniquity to the Lord against myself, and thou forgavest the ungodliness of my heart. What I like is when you start to think in terms of faith and righteousness as antithetical to self-serving and evil, you begin to realize that these sorts of confessions are ripe with those sorts of remarks. I will acknowledge my sin. I will confess mine iniquity to the Lord against myself. My heart. I will submit. I will humble myself before you. All sorts of other things of that nature. It's the man turning to the place where the confession of sin is sincere. Where repentance and he is going before his God saying, I've got nothing to offer. I haven't been good. That's the whole point. I haven't been good. Will you accept my desire to pursue you? My belief that pursuing you is where I want to be. And God doesn't reckon your sin against you. That's forgiveness. And he does reckon you as righteous. Is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? The questioner is back in the saddle. He was uh, going to get band-aids on his earlier wounds. And uh, Paul says, We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But it was before he was circumcised. Now these are are things that are not hidden in the scriptures, but if you were reading through Genesis, you wouldn't be going, oh, yeah, look, he gets the promise before he gets circumcision. And Abraham is back in 18, the early mid-1800s B.C. The law doesn't show up for another 400 years. The law of Moses. Another 400 years. Circumcision, not till later. This is back in Abraham's 75th year. And the promise came to Abraham and the exchange of faith and righteousness came 
at that time. In Genesis 15:5, I have it a little lower on the right-hand side, left-hand side. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul makes a case. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness, which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The circumcision came after the grace and the faith and the righteousness. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham, before he was circumcised. That everyone, God has always been about heart first. Now, Christians, some Christians go around suggesting that that baptism equates with circumcision, so you should be baptizing infants and so forth and so on. Well, you never want to put the cart before the horse. You never want to put the sign before the thing signified. You want, you want to be sure that you're not telling the world that this circumcision is making you somebody God pleased with you. You're a Jew. Um, you don't want to tell people that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're about a week old, but you're a father of Jesus. No, you're not. Heart first. Um, sign second. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So unless I achieve this righteousness of faith, somehow this faith, this, this believing, this kind of approach to what God has said. God told Abraham something. Abraham believed him in such a way that God said, oh man, I thought I'm going to think of you as righteous because of that recognition of who I am, that recognition of my word versus your own. That is the only way I'm going to be a part of the descendants of Abraham. We should inherit the world only through the righteousness of faith. If it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. The promise came back with faith. It didn't come with the law. So you lose those two things. You can't combine these two worlds. You can't combine adherence to the law because if you believe the law has authority, you're bound to keep the whole law, says Paul in another place. If you argue that the law has to be kept, that means it's higher than you, and you've got to keep all of it. You can't go, I don't want to keep that health law. I don't want to keep that food law. I don't want to keep that small portion. You've got to keep it all. And if you keep it all, faith, as he says in another place, will be of no advantage to you. Grace will be of no advantage to you. You're trying to earn your righteousness. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's what, the, yeah, that's what you inherit with the law. That's when Paul, back when he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law, that's why I'm, one of the reasons I'm thinking he means, yeah, we know what it really is there for. Because he says, you try to get this inheritance, this descendants from Abraham by the law, you will not only nullify law and the prom, uh, faith and the promise, you will only get what law gives you. And the only thing that law gives you 
is wrath. Because that's the nature of law. I looked at the King James and the New King James. It phrases it for where there is no, instead of but. It's an, I, I guess in the Greek it's optional as to which direction you're going to go. It, it's clearer to me when it says for. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's the nature of law. Law comes into the world, and we're going to get into this later in chapter 5 and chapter 7. Law comes into the world and condemns. It creates a line. You know, there is a... Um, It's a creation of a line and creates, by the line, crossing it. Adam and Eve could not sin in any way except eating that tree. The fruit of that tree, excuse me. That would have been a big, a big dinner. Um, whatever the fruit was on that tree, that was banned. It was the only thing banned. Everything else was okay. There was no sin other than that. Because sin is violation. Sin is lawlessness. That's what we get that in other passages. Sin is lawlessness. And when somebody who goes back to the law to embrace it, and this is a big problem, and much of Acts and all of Galatians and Romans and Hebrews, all of these things are dealing with this issue of Christians being pushed back to the law. And he's trying to make it clear, look, you guys, lighten up. This is not the wet path of righteousness. This is not... What you're trying to do is just making yourselves slaves again to the things you formerly were not able to do. And you're not going to be able to do it now. I think... uh, I think uh, Peter makes that comment in in Acts somewhere after the Jerusalem Council. Where is the Jerusalem Council? Is it in Jerusalem Council? Um, yeah, in, in chapter 15 of Acts. And they're arguing about this point. Were the Gentiles required to keep the law of Moses? Was the question before the Jerusalem Council. And he talks about how they made, these people were getting converted by faith without works of the law, and we shouldn't make, um, the God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving to them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That was St. Peter in the Jerusalem Council when that question was on deck. If you go back to the law, you go back to wrath, because that's the nature of law. It's all the lines that you've it's like suddenly realizing you're in one of those scenes in one of those movies, uh, usually a, a rip-off movie, and it's always an attractive girl in spandex trying to get through a room to the safe, and suddenly she puts on the goggles and can see all the laser beams. You know, they always have way too few laser beams, sufficiently arranged so that she can do a very nice modern dance through, <laughs> which uh, displays the spandex in all of its glory. Uh, and she gets through without being sawn in half by the lasers. 
or setting off the alarms. Well, that's what happens when you get to the law, but it's everywhere. You read through the law, you go, my gosh, no wonder. Thank God for grace. Now, here at the end of the passage, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his descendants, not only on the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, he's basically saying this is a, it's sort of a triumphant uh, closing where he's addressing, we're all descendants of Abraham. We have one God. We have one path to righteousness. We're not seeking mutual election. We're not seeking being elect into Judaism. We're seeking the righteousness of God, and we all found out that we are all guilty of sin. Now, this is where this last section is really good, because it, it goes to a great length describing Abraham's faith. Because that's here's the example, right? He's this, this ancient example saying God has always wanted it this way. Some Christians think God saved people differently in the Old Testament. If they went to the temple and offered their two turtle doves for whatever, if they offered their, their blameless lamb, if they did all the things right, God forgave them by works in the temple or sacrifices or whatever. And all the way back to Abraham, before the law even existed, the nature of faith and the nature of God's righteousness poured out by grace is the state of things. God always wants the heart. He doesn't want the doodads. Look at what the hope is, well, what the faith is. Verse 18. <clears throat> In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your descendants be. In hope, he believed against hope. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's room. He was given this promise when he, he was 100 years old, you know, and his wife was past menopause, as good-looking as she was. And he did not weaken in faith. He believed in hope. He believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, listen to the way it's described and put your own faith <clears throat> on the chopping block, own faith in the balance with this, and saying, the things I've believed. Now, he was believing that he'd be the father of multitudes. That was the promise. He was not promised forgiveness of sins. He was not promised a Messiah. He was promised that he'd be the father of multitudes. That's what he believed. And that's what God credited him for. You were promised, on the other hand, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved other than Jesus Christ. And you believed the promise of God in Jesus Christ. That's what you believe. Now the question is, is this, does this describe it? Do you hope against hope? You did not weaken in faith. No, distrust made him waver. But he, gave, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Does that describe, you know, most of the people, I, 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 since I have a philosophy ministry, I get to talk to people who have doubts. I have gone through some doubts. 
Well, I'd go back to the no distrust made him waver, strong in your faith. Have you been giving glory to God? I mean, not in the sense of going to worship services. Giving glory to God. Have you been giving him thanks? Have you been honoring God as God? Because that's, remember, the whole thing of faith is whether or not he's there and what he says you opt for rather than for what you say. That's the basic thing. I seek him and I believe what he says. That's, that's the simplification of faith. He is, I believe what he says. Now, when I stop giving him glory, when I stop, we covered it in Romans 1, when I did not honor God or give him thanks, he gave them up to the futility of their minds. That's what happens to everybody. You don't. You stop giving glory to God, you start, stop becoming strong in your faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. What's your view of God? Fully convinced. He had no question. That is why his faith, that is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Go back over it. In hope he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith. No distrust made him waver. No, these are vague. Try to develop some poetic sense. What's, what kind of person? Go back and read the life of Abraham. He had his downs. Gave his wife away a couple times. Not a good idea, by the way. <laughs> but this is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone. In case you had missed that the Bible study leader tonight was trying to apply it to your life, the writer of the book tries to apply it to your life. But for ours also, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The law is not possible. The law won't work. The law just brings wrath. It looks like righteousness at all severity to the body, rigor of devotion, dotted I's, cross T's, incredibly uh, detailed minutiae about how you should live and how much your spice rack should weigh. And, uh, but this is, who do you believe? Simple. Now, in some people's lives, it's much easier to try to be righteous according to the law because, really, frankly, that's still being in charge of you yourself. And you really like being in charge of you yourself. Really, honestly. Because you're really the only person who loves you adequately. And you, you would really like to be the, the person who loves you the most ought to be in charge of you the most, right? And you love you the most. I don't love you that much, that's for sure. But it was given to us that this path is possible. Righteousness of God. Not election, not joining the club. The righteousness of God. Do you want the righteousness of God? Do you want the relationship with God? It was written for his sake and for yours. Our promise is a little bit more specific and it's a lot more possible. Well, that's the end of... Oh, golly, only an hour and 15 minutes. I promise next week to go a lot longer. Um... Next week, God willing, it'll be chapters 5, a lot of entertaining stuff. Chapter 6, a lot of entertaining stuff. This 3 and 4 was complex. 
Um, nine will be complex. Seven, you think it's complex, not so complex, but it's, but next week, five and six, they'll be good. Original sin, all sorts of stuff. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Bless us and keep us looking to you and your son in faith, putting your words as our guide to life rather than our own. In your son's name, amen.